0: I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't myself make merry on Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the workhouses, prisons, treadmills I've mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Well, many can't go there, sir, and many would rather die. Well, if they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. A quotation from Charles Dickens' beloved Christmas carol, words between Scrooge and, uh, and some local gentlemen who are seeking in vain to collect some relief from the poor. Um, it's a passage that was brought to my mind recently, uh, a family gathering some years ago when my wife and I got into a discussion with another family member who takes uh, a fairly liberal view of things and was smarting over the recent presidential election. When the inevitable subject came up of abortion, um, that person was most zealous for a woman's right to choose and repeatedly sought to dismiss the entire matter in the manner of Scrooge, it's none of my business. Meaning, I suppose, that a woman uh, has a right to do what she wants with with her body and anything attached to it, uh, and it 's altogether a private matter, and some of you may have some sympathy with that argument. It seems respectful, it seems democratic it's a thing to say it 's not my business. But what is our business? Um, I would like to address that briefly this morning uh, as a matter of fact, forty years ago or over forty years ago, when I first myself became concerned about the matter of the sanctity of of life. The issue was at that time pretty sharply focused on the matter of elective abortion. And, some, and, 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 and someone sought to suggest that um, any argument in favor of abortion might be an even better argument for infanticide or fetal experimentation or euthanasia. Those things were almost unheard of in the United States at that time. He was considered an alarmist. Partial birth abortion was unthinkable, and people dismissed that sort of thought as a groundless, slippery slope argument. But time has proved them exactly wrong. Now, I want to say that I understand this is an incredibly sensitive and difficult issue. I don't know that there may not be someone here this morning who has uh, been faced with the absolutely wrenching situation regarding abortion or the thorny, uh, thorny end-of-life issues, when to pull the plug, when medical devices are no longer preserving life but simply preserving death. These can be very hard and complex matters. But I also want to affirm in the strongest terms that the grace and mercy and forgiveness and love of God is very great. And if any of you are personally impacted by this message or hurt or angry or conflicted, I urge you to speak with me or Pastor Ellis or either of our wives. We must recognize that this is not a political issue, but a profoundly moral and theological issue. The Church of Christ has the double responsibility to our community and to our nation and to the Lord. uh, On one hand, we must unequivocally Uh, condemn the destruction of innocent life, not simply children in utero, but people of any age and condition, and uphold the sanctity of life in the strongest terms, while, on the other hand, extending uh, the message of mercy and healing and forgiveness to those who may have had the terrible experience of falling into sin or being driven to it to seek to bring them to the place of repentance and healing and peace. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Um, Beginning at verse 7. 2 Kings 8, 7. Hear now the word of God. Now, Elisha came to Damascus, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, All kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elijah said to him, Go to him, um, and said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. The man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel, that you will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and went to his master and who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you will certainly recover. But the next day, he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. So here's the situation in this text, (coughs) which God the Holy Spirit has deliberately included in uh, the Holy Scriptures. The king of Aram, of, of Syria, is sick. But then he hears this extraordinary, rather extraordinary news that Elisha, the renowned and celebrated Jewish prophet of Israel, is there, in, right there in Damascus. God had sent him there, although Syria was Israel's most terrible enemy the king for his part had um, had plenty of reason to hate and to fear elisha um, but he also had reason to respect him to know that he was a true prophet of god the god of elisha the god of israel did certainly seem to be very powerful and merciful uh, at any rate ben-hadad was no longer a man in a position to argue theology or politics. He was deathly ill, and he knew it. But now he hears that none other than Elisha uh, is in town. Maybe this was his chance. So the king quickly calls his most trusted and influential representative, the army captain Haziel, to go and inquire of the prophet. Uh, The staggering grandeur of the gift that Haziel takes with him uh, is is really ought to have caught your attention Um, to give to the prophet 40 camel loads of the finest wares of Damascus. It gives us the distinct impression that the king is trying to mend fences with the prophet whom he had earlier in chapter 6 sought to kill. And it also appears that he's not simply asking about the, the prognosis of his medical condition, but hoping that the prophet might have some influence upon his health in future. Money is no obstacle. The king sends 40 camel loads of the best to be found. Ben-Hadad, the military officer, the trusted messenger, right-hand man of the king, is shocked to learn from Elisha Uh, that God had apparently chosen him to be successor to the king. Elisha instructs him to inform the king that he would certainly recover, but confidentially tells Ben-Hadad that he would in fact certainly die. The trusted servant of the king quickly returns and gives Elisha the message, you will certainly recover, but then proceeds to suffocate him by placing a thick water-soaked cloth over his face. And the text concludes by informing us, then Haziel succeeded him as king. So, whose business was this? The fact that the king was smothered to death by his associate, was that a state matter or national crime? Or was it simply a, a private matter between the king and his advisor? Now, you might be tempted to protest that this is nothing less than a bald, straight-out murder, a homicide. But what if I was to call it euthanasia? Does that change anything? I mean, the man was dying. His close and trusted friend, whom he sent off to consult with the doctor, uh, when informed of the prognosis, simply performed the mercy killing. He, he put the old man out of his misery. He was going to die anyway, right? No prayers. but The fact that the king himself did not initiate or consent to the procedure, that it was not his request, that he uh, his untimely uh, demise is not is really not altogether important. Reports have it uh, that uh, a significant percentage of euthanized persons in Holland, where um, abortion and then later some years later euthanasia are both legal, were performed without the parent's uh, the patient's consent, rather at the behest of a concerned uh, a physician or a family member. Um, who, who, who knew better. Now, initially, that was not legal, <clears throat> but, um, but it, it, that changed, and it is now under certain conditions. Oh, we know uh, Hen- uh, Uncle Henrik would never have wanted to live this way. Or, or simply in one case, because the administration needed the old woman's hospital bed. Now, someone might protest that Ben Hadad who <clears throat> was murdered not by some concerned family member, but, but a man overtaken with greed uh, for the throne, which had been promised him at the king's demise. Yes. And how will we safeguard legal euthanasia when, so that those who, uh, who are making, the most, uh, making these life and death decisions are not the very ones who stand to profit the most from the demise of the patient, uh, relatives who will receive a property or cash uh, inheritance or who are simply worn out with caring for grandma or unwilling to pay for her medicines or, or listen to her endless uh, complaints or an insurance company who is simply trying to look, look after the bottom line and keep down expenses. Is it none of our business? Why should we be concerned ourselves about abortion or infanticide or fetal experimentation or euthanasia, which is slowly, mind you, slowly being sold to Americans as, the, as a sensible, polite, pain-free, financially responsible way to decrease the surplus population. Is it ever our business what people do to themselves or to others? Um, the fact of the matter is that In the United States, we do have some consensus and some biblically defensible circumstances in which we we have made it our business. Uh, That is to say, the legitimate business of the government to intervene in the lives of private citizens for the common good of the nation. Uh, First, the government is frequently empowered to intervene to protect individuals in certain situations. Now, this can be a little controversial, but we've passed certain laws. For example, we a law to require individuals to wear seatbelts when they drive in their car. You can be arrested for not wearing your seatbelt. Failure to wear a seatbelt has no effect on others. Uh, they will not be injured by, injured by your failure to, to wear a seatbelt. Uh, but, but these laws have been passed because a majority of people in the United States apparently feel that Wearing seatbelts or requiring driver's education or requiring licensing is is so important a means of reducing the carnage on the highways. So it warrants some some interference in the privacy of the individual. We say, oh, you've got to wear a seatbelt. Well, there's other situations. Likewise, we've passed laws making it illegal to dump certain toxic chemicals into waterways. We enforce certain standards of automobile uh, emissions, exhaust emissions, and we do it for the good of the nation. Uh, The rights of the individuals in these cases are made subservient to the good of the nation. Now, I think a Christian might very well support such reasoning, and indeed we would perhaps suggest that there are other reasons why laws might be enacted and enforced for the good of the nation. We We, well, might be concerned, for for example, that allowing certain behavior like the selfish slaughter of unborn infants could be so terribly offensive to God as should make us fearful of his temporal wrath and judgments upon our nation, even in this age. Or we might advocate for the enforcement of laws that would spare the social fabric of the country from becoming destructive and some sort of erosive behavior. I believe that upholding a very high view of, the, of human life is not only profoundly biblical, but also very important to the health of any society. Making life cheap is not wise. It is not a good precedent. It is not a good place for a healthy nation to go. Whether it be the unborn child in the womb, or the infant child, or the incompetent, or the incurably ill, or the aged, To treat them as non-persons is a grave mistake, uh, which, if you'll excuse the expression, is certain to come back and bite us in the butt. Some years ago, the French biologist Jean Rostin uh, wrote these words, which I have quoted before. Not here. Um, He writes, for my part, listen to this, for my part, I believe there is no life so degraded, debased, deteriorated, or impoverished that it does not deserve respect and is not worth defending with zeal and conviction. Above all, I believe that a terrible precedent would be established if we agreed that a life could be allowed to end because it was not worth preserving. Since the notion of of biological worth... Uh, even if carefully circumscribed at first, would become broader and less precise. After eliminating that which was no longer human, the next step would be to eliminate that which was not sufficiently human. And finally, nothing would be spared except that which fitted a certain ideal concept of humanity. I have the weakness to believe, continues Rasta, That it is an honor for a society to desire the expensive luxury of sustaining life for its useless, incompetent, and incurably ill members. I would almost measure a society's degree of civilization by the amount of effort and vigilance it imposes on itself out of pure respect for life. It is noble to struggle unrelentingly to save someone's life as if we were dear to us when objectively, he has no value and is not even loved by anyone. End of quote. Now, not an altogether specifically Christian argument, but very prescient, having been written a long time ago, and certainly something that every Christian should be able to agree with. The problem we're facing is that uh, the way things are, and the way things are going, It will not be you and perhaps not even your elected um, representative who will make these life and death decisions. It will be bureaucrats. It will be scientific uh, committees with the assistance of a few carefully chosen liberal theologians and insurance executives looking over their half-rimmed glasses at the latest genetic tests and actuarial tables who will decide in the end. Who gets the operation? Who gets the medical care? Who gets the vaccination? Who gets spared? Who gets to live and who gets dropped in a dumpster or harvested for science? For the good of the nation and the national gene pool, of course. Listen, brothers and sisters, that is not the way Christians think. We need to have a very firm, solid grip on this matter of the importance of the sanctity of human life. It is not a small narrow matter. It is a huge matter. It is a matter is a defining matter of western society. It is it is our business. It's our business to see that human life is carefully defined and assiduously protected. Because uh, the brave new world and her Techno gurus have no loyalty to the values that you hold dear, and which are held dear by our Lord God. Their vision of the world is altogether different from anything Christian, and it's suicidal. The Church of Jesus Christ, in every age, has held these truths, uh, which we that must govern us. Christians, in centuries ago, have fought for these values. And for a long time, they held firm. And uh, we're called to, to live them. Listen carefully to these three propositions, which you'll see up on the screen above you, the wall. This is our business. First, we must insist upon the fact that all life is precious and sacred simply and solely because it is made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, and 27, we read, Then the Lord God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over all earth and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you hear how God makes this distinction uh, in these verses between, uh, to between men and animals, uh, between man and the rest of all of creation over whom we are given lordship and responsibility. It is, uh, it is a distinction not based, not based upon human potential or ability or beauty or usefulness but upon the sole fact that mankind, uh, unlike all of the rest of creation, is deliberately created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, Later, God uh, underlines to us the sanctity of life uh, that is the high value he places upon human life in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, uncomfortable verses where we read, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for he is in the image of God, which God, God made man. Uh, the high measure a value that God places upon human life is expressed by God's demand that the taking of human life must be paid for with the ultimate punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And notice the reason God gives for this, the justification for this. For in the image of God, has God made man. God regards human life as precious in his sight and has endued every person with an eternal soul. No animal, no plant life, no inanimate object uh, in his, uh, has, has a soul. Uh, and he's not made in God's image. And therefore, it has no intrinsic value. Uh, the value of all of creation, save mankind, is defined completely in terms of its beauty or its usefulness to mankind. My dog is useful because he amuses me or is useful to me. that's his great value, but the value of man is solely de- derived or uh, from the fact that he's made he or she is made uh, in the image of God. Human life is sacred and must be protected because it's made in god's image. That is an absolutely unassailable uh, point and an unassailable argument and we And if we miss that point, if we give up that ground, we lose everything and we begin to slide even further down the slippery slope. Secondly, human life begins at the moment of conception. That is both scientifically sound and theologically demanded. From the moment of implantation, when the sperm cell attaches to the uterine wall, reproductive life explodes into action. That is human life. David writes, and we heard these verses earlier in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made and in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days which are ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, words regarded uh, for us and recorded for us in Scripture, shows us uh, that created life uh, has precious uh, significance in the eyes of God even before it was visible. When Mary comes to visit her relative Elizabeth, the baby Jesus within Mary's own body could not have been more than a few days old, if that. And yet, the unborn Jesus, uh, the unborn John, rather, leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb in recognition of his Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the unborn John recognizes the unborn Jesus because both are alive, though yet unborn. Life begins. A conception. You don't have to be a genius to know that. People don't, a woman doesn't say, oh, this is my product of conception. She says, no, this is my baby. And we all rejoice. Thirdly, uh, the Church of Christ is called to preach, preach the gospel of saving grace and hope. And to show active compassion toward unwed mothers and mothers with unwanted children or to the aged or the poor, the infirm, the homeless, the, the disregarded. That is our job. I thank the Lord that this congregation supports the pregnancy care, maybe the Alpha Care Center, I think it is, with your annual bottle drive. Maybe it should be in the budget as well. I urge you to vote for our new president-elect, uh, Mr. Biden, and for the vice president, Kamala Harris, and for their proposed uh, secretary of Health and Human Services, I think his name is Mr. Becerra, um, that they would be restrained from, from removing the protections of life that were put in place by the previous administration. I pray for the March to Life, normally held at this time of year, is scheduled for the 29th in Washington D.C. I would normally have been driving down to that, um, but this year it has been—it's um, gone virtual. Uh, the, it's a huge march, hundreds of thousands of people, but the uh, uh, the organizers determined that it would be too much of a burden upon the already overburdened uh, police of Washington D.C. So it's virtual. Um, you'll find a link on the church uh, Facebook page. Or, um, or you can um, email me and I'll send you the link. You have to uh, register and then uh, they send you the, the actual link and you can join in. It's, they'll have some wonderful speakers. and uh, We need to remind our, our new government that we regard uh, the matter of the sanctity of life not only to be our business, but, but their business as well. And we, we must know, brothers and sisters, our business. Whatever else it may be, it is certainly this. Our business is first of all to proclaim the saving gospel of new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. To a people who are so miserable, so confused, so selfish, and so short-sighted as be willing to be willing to snuff out the life of their own babies and their own old folk and those who are witless or incurably ill or disregarded by society and think they're doing a brave thing. Only God can change hearts and lives and we must pray toward that. The Church of Christ must seek to serve as the moral conscience of our nation who has lost its moral conscience and moral compass and we must uphold the sanctity of life. Our earthly future, our heavenly future, the Western society really depends upon it. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are met with such a simple fact and such a clear fact, and yet something that has become so, uh, so crazy, has become so indefensible, has become so much of a matter of conflict within our country. We pray that you would help us to firmly but gently uphold the sanctity of human life. We know, Lord that it is a disgrace uh, for such things as abortion or infanticide or, or euthanasia. Lord, that the blood of such cry out to you from the ground. How can we answer for it, Lord? We, uh, if we should not be those who will at least pray, and those who will care, and those who will do what we can. Lord, we pray your blessing upon our nation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.